G'day Don's fans, Jonathan Walsh here and welcome once again to another episode of Don the Stat. We're back on the winners list following a 13-point win against the Giants on Easter Sunday. At 3-1, and one, we're off to gather round in Adelaide to take on Melbourne on Saturday afternoon in a battle between third and fourth. To chat through it all, I'm joined by my co-host Ian Hume. Hume, how's things, mate? No complaints here, just enjoying the school holidays and looking forward to see how the Dons stack up against one of the best sides in the competition this weekend. How about yourself? Yeah, uh, no school holidays for me, but much like yourself, mate, I'm really excited for this week. It, it might be famous last words, but I'm kind of really intrigued to see how we take the challenge of playing, uh, you know, one of the premiership fancies, a, a team in really good form, uh, and also over in Adelaide into state, and, and then the challenge of, you know, what looks like it's going to be wet weather. I think in years gone by, and, uh, you know, any one of those three things are probably brought on a little bit of dread for me, but I'm genuinely excited to see how we handle it. Um, you know, no no huge expectations or anything of the like, but I think Brad Scott will have his charges just geared up for another challenge to to try and, you know, take on another opportunity to to evolve how we're playing football. So, yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to, um, you know, sit down on the tally and, and take it all in. Yeah, me too. I'm really keen. Uh, before we get started tonight, I just want to say that the bonus episode eight with Jade Hockey is now out on Patreon. It's had some good responses so far from those who've listened to it. Uh, it's going to go live for all listeners this Sunday morning. So hopefully it's to go with an Essendon win the day before, but if not, it's be a nice little palate cleanser uh, over the disappointment of a loss. Also want to shout out to our new patrons, uh, Michael Goth, Chris Gillies, Sam, Stephen McAteer, James Lowry, Chris Blackberry, Peter Ackery, and Frank Levy. Been some great new video content coming this week as well that you've put out. Um, and again, that's also got some great response from our patrons. Yeah, feedback's been great, mate. I'm hoping I can get one out ahead of the game against the Ds. There's one area of particular on the Ds game that I'd like to have a bit of a look into and and see whether I can grab some footage of it. So fingers crossed I can uh, take some time away from the day job and uh, and put that together. We all know what's more important, let's be honest. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, before you start, uh, big thanks also to Nick Fischera and Matt Hanlon for their great reviews on Apple Podcasts and to Brett Duran and Gail Taylor for their shout-outs on Twitter. Really appreciate your ongoing support of the show. All right, well, look, let's get stuck into what happened with the Giants game. And, obviously, it was a good win for Essendon, a bit of heart and mounts there with some of the goal kicking. But, overall, I think we were the better team on the day, no matter what Sam McClure thinks. Uh First point that we looked at was capitalise on GWS's weaknesses against small forwards. We identified that more than half of their goals that have been kicked to them up to that point have been kicked by small forwards. So if you look at it purely from a result point of view, uh, between Caldwell, Menzi and Davey, who you would argue are our three small forwards, uh, whilst they're able to generate six swaps between them, uh, they couldn't convert, so they didn't kick any goals. So at a glance, you'd probably say we didn't achieve this However, there's more to a small forward game than kicking goals, and I think you've looked into that in detail. Yeah, firstly, mate, I'm going to fine you $2 towards the Donnerstadt end-of-season trip uh, for mentioning Sam McClure on this podcast. But that aside, yeah, I actually thought Menzi, besides Stringer, was our best forward, even though he didn't kick a goal. He he got up and down the ground better than I've seen him do in his first few games, which was really impressive. Ten of his... 17 disposals were contested possessions, which I think is a really good sign that he's prepared to, you know, really work hard for for possession and, and not just rely on on gimme balls. Uh, and which, you know, and from an Essendon perspective, 
that put him equal with Setterfield and behind only Draper, Stringer and, and Parrish for contested ball, which was a, a really good sign that a small forward's prepared to do that. And then eight score involvements was our equal second highest. And he also had three goal assists to go go with it. Uh, Davey had six score involvements and two goal assists and Caldwell had six score involvements and the one goal assist. So yeah, they, they weren't able to kick goals. They kicked a number of behinds between them, but they, they certainly contributed to, to a number of scores, which was, uh, which was good to see. Yeah. And when I also looked into it a bit, one of the interesting things that I noticed was our mid forwards, not our small forwards. So with, use creating that tackling pressure inside 50. So Perkins had three stringer in length to each. I know that not everything that looks like a tackle gets counted as a tackle, but I just thought that was an interesting thing to point out that our mids were actually putting on that defensive pressure as well as our smalls. And that helps create that those turnovers in the forward 50, which are so dangerous for kicking goals for yourself. Yeah, spot on. And and I think that's been the key to our forward play as a rule, hasn't it? Is that everyone's just got to do their bit, whether it's, you know, in the air, on the ground, or when the opposition has the ball. Hmm. Well, the next thing was to spread their defenders to create space in the forward line. We specifically identified Taylor, who was averaging nine in set possessions, and Buckley, who was averaging seven up to that point. Uh, so Taylor went at uh, average, he had nine. Buckley had only four, but Nick Haynes sort of came back into some of his best form. He led the way for them with 10. But despite that, those defenders having those intercept possessions, we were still really efficient in terms of generating shots. So we had 36 shots from 61 inside 50s. And I don't think that even counts the out of bounds on the full shots that we also had. So we went in an efficiency of 59%. Um, our efficiency pre games prior was 48.8. So we were going, uh, you know, 15% higher than what Carlton did the previous week against GWS. So we were able to be really effective uh, at least generating shots uh, against the GWS backline. Yeah. I think more generally our forwards stayed deeper than what they did against the Saints, you know, particularly, you know, Perkins and Caldwell and the like uh, are included in that. Uh, and then when they did get up the ground and it was more, seemed to be more so Davey and, and Menzi that were doing it, they did get back into our forward 50 a lot better than we had the week before. We obviously didn't kick straight at goal, but, and, you know, we generated lots of shots. The Japer and Phillips combination worked well, both of them getting deep at various times. Again, they were, uh, you know, culprits of, of missing really gettable set shots, but it did help to stretch the Giants' defence. And, you know, you mentioned Taylor went at average, but it is at average and, and not above it. So you sort of take that, don't you? Um, uh, what I really liked was our pressure from all of our forwards. I touched on that before that, you know, everyone just has to have their go. Stringer, Jones, Caldwell and Davey ranked fourth, sixth, seventh, and eighth, respectively, for pressure acts among Essendon players. So you normally expect to see your midfielders, you know, filling the top sort of four or five, but our and, and your defenders, you know, up there as well. But it was our forwards that really led the way. We scored three goals, eight or 11 scoring shots from turnovers in our own forward half. So that's a real big improvement on what we've seen this year and, and certainly what we've seen um, in years gone by. And then we had six scoring shots from, yeah, we had six, scoring shots from forward half turnovers in round one, eight in round two, and then it dropped down to four in round three against the Saints. So, you know, to go at those numbers throughout the year and then jump up to 11 against the Giants, I think was a good step in the right direction. Yeah, and definitely. And the final main point that we were focused on was the use of the fifth mid at the contest to try and work over the key midfielders of GWS. In particular, the focus was on Cornelio and Kelly. I think we're going to be saying this 
uh, week after week the use of the fifth mid- midfielder until they finally decide to do it. Um, it still hasn't happened yet. Yeah, it didn't play out that way, did it? We did see Stringer in at two centre bounces, which was a, a little bit of a surprise. It had been called well in previous weeks that had you know spent a little bit of time in there, albeit not much. We did see some different options on the wing, though, didn't we? I, I guess that was that was needed once Heppel was made sub, but. Uh, Caldwell, Perkins, even Merritt at times um, spent some time on the wing. And I think, you know, we ran the game out well, didn't we? We won the last quarter. So, you know, all's well that ends well on the day. But ultimately, and we'll talk about it later, I'm sure, um, I'd like to see us with a genuine fifth or sixth midfield or fifth and sixth midfield rotation option. Yeah, it's something we've been doing quite well so far this season in in running our games. You know, our, our starts haven't always been great, but it's the fact that they're finishing strong suggests that they are, primed and, and ready for a, a good season. So just in terms of some other general things that went right with the game, uh, we conceded a lot less intercepts. So clearances were fairly even. And so the big ge- difference in generating attack came from Essendon having 10 more intercept possessions. And that obviously gives you the opportunity to to create attacking avenues. So if you go by the particular players that had the most intercept possessions, GWS did have the top three in Haynes, Taylor and Whitfield. But Essendon had then had the next six. So Redmond, Kelly, BZT, McGrath, Munn and Laverty all had six or more intercept possessions. So we're creating a lot of opportunities through intercepts. And they're at different areas of the ground as well compared to JDOS, which were mostly in the back half. Martin and uh, other players were getting up the ground and creating those intercepts more in the, the midfield area. Yeah, and we scored well again from our defensive 50, didn't we? Well, in terms of scoring shots, we we had seven scoring shots to three. Uh, we kicked two goals for five from our, our seven scoring shots. So it didn't entirely show on the scoreboard, but, you know, we did a, a reasonable job of, you know, once again, as we have done uh, pretty much every week this season of being able to intercept in our back 50 and then turn that into scoring opportunities. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it sort of flows into the next point, which is about how well the structures held up. So GWS only had nine scores generated from turnovers compared to 25 for Essendon. So that's a huge advantage that Essendon generated there. You could see on the screen, at least watching it on TV, there are many examples where GWS would get the ball at half back and then they'd have nowhere to go. And you could see them having to really think their way through our zone defense. So again, really good signs that the structures that are being put in place, the, the players are executing and they're causing difficulties for the opposition and then we're able to use those turnovers to generate attack. Yeah, there weren't a lot of Giants fans there, but uh, to make an audible groan, but you could definitely sense that that their players were were sort of lost for ideas. At, at, unless they were able to get real quick ball, particularly out of stoppage, which they did on a few occasions. And uh, yeah, Brad Scott touched on that during the week, that there were a few stoppages in the first half that, that they were able to get ball movement from a little bit too easy. And, and we certainly rectified that, but, but that aside, I think we did a, a really good job. Um, you know, again, those 25 scoring shots were eight goals, 17. So we didn't finish off that work, but yeah, it was a, it was an improved pressure game for the most part. The giants averaged seven scoring shots from turnovers in their defensive half and 16.6 from turnovers in total. So for us to generate 14 scoring shots from defensive half, Turnovers more than double the Giants' season average. Uh, I think was a, a really good, um, yeah, it, it was a really good result out of the game. And then you know that twenty-five scoring shots from turnovers, I think, was a, a real positive. So um, yeah, I, I think all in all, it was a good outcome. Yeah, I think despite the kicking accuracy for goal, I think we can 
all sort of say that was a really positive game in pretty much all areas of, you know, forward, defence, midfield, the way the, the way the game played out there. Yeah, and I think, you know, the, just to clarify, that that's seven scoring shots against from from turnovers in their defensive half. So we, there's been a lot of talk about we haven't played anyone yet and, you know, we've beaten poor opposition. But not only did we beat the Giants, we beat them in a part of the game that they actually have been pretty good at and they haven't allowed teams to sort of, when they've turned it over in their own forward half, they haven't allowed teams to go down the other end and score. And, and we we went at double the rate that that they've allowed in the, the first three rounds of the season. So I think we should see that as a tick. Absolutely. Well, look, let's move on to the in the news section and the things that have that've come out this week. Uh, one thing that caught my eye was from Ricky Mangidis' Shinbona blog. Um, Ricky's a friend of the show. He came on at the end of last year to talk about his experiences working at North Melbourne whilst Brad Scott was there. And then the work he does on Shinbona is is outstanding. Once again, I'll provide a link to the description for people to check that out. One chart that he posted this week was uh, highlighting how many minutes have been played per team by players 22 and under. Ricky really focuses instead of, you know, just a rough age and games played profile, which can be misleading if you've got a lot of, say, older players uh, not playing in your actual side can be a bit misleading in terms of age profile. So he focuses on minutes played per player and then calculating based on age and experience there. And he put out a chart where if you look at the players who have played minutes this season, in terms of those that are 22 years and under, Essendon currently has the fourth highest total for players 22 and under that have played minutes this season. So it's only behind Gold Coast, Fremantle and Hawthorne. So if you, added it all up, about 28% of the total minutes played for Essendon this year have been players in that 22 and under age bracket. Now, sometimes there's a tendency in sport fandoms to work around the idea that it's better to be young than good. Uh, we saw last year how one of the oldest sides in history was able to win the flag in Geelong. So being young isn't necessarily a substitute for being good. However, it is encouraging that despite the youth of the side, we've managed to win three games to this point in the season. So if you think about those three teams that are above us in that metric, that's the same amount that those teams have won combined. So again, really pleasing signs there that the the fact that we are a young side isn't preventing us from being a successful side at, to this stage of the season. Yeah, and I think the, the key is that we're picking young players that are in form and then we're giving them you know, big responsibility. So we're not just picking them, but we're we're playing them in roles where they can be effective. You know, our our two wingers are, are in that twenty-two and under bracket in in Durham and Martin. We've got you know Harry Jones, who's I think still twenty-one, playing as a key forward, and then we've got two small forwards who are very young uh, and have played a handful of games between them, who are have become really important parts of how we're trying to play the game. So, yeah, but I think moreover, a couple of things stand out here to me. We looked at how young Fremantle were last year. And I think a lot of us, myself included, were a little bit put off by the view that Essendon, you know, maybe couldn't have a year like them and and we needed to prepare to have inconsistencies. And, uh, and, you know, I think we sort of thought, well, if Fremantle could do it, why can't we? And I think that, you know, is reasonable. But what we're seeing with Fremantle in 2023 is that inconsistency has manifested itself from season to season rather than just, you know, within a season or within a game. And arguably that drop-off started last year. They won their last three games of 2022, but they beat the Bulldogs at home who weren't going that well at the time. And then they, they won their last two games against bottom four sides. 
in the block before that, they had three losses, a draw, and two wins against teams that didn't make the finals. So I think they really dropped off in the second half of 2022, and that's carried through into 2023. Uh, and then the... The other one that stood out to me was that the the Magpies are effectively the most experienced team in the comp so far in 2023, or when I say most experienced, the oldest, which I'm putting in inverted um, commas. Their young players are having a, a huge impact, and I, I think we're we're a little bit blinded by the fact that they're surrounded by a lot of mature bodies. Uh, so, yeah, and, and then I was also surprised to see that we've had more minutes from players 22 and under than the Crows, but I think maybe that's because of the sub-choice. Uh, we've had Waller, Hind, Heppel as subs in three of our four games, so older players haven't got a lot of minutes, uh, and that's probably lifted the average age of our 23 when we look at that as a metric, but not necessarily our playing minutes, whereas they've had Tyler Brown, Phil Thorpe, uh, Jones and Schoenberg as their four subs and their four guys that are 20 and under. So, yeah, it was um, uh, yeah, it was a... Uh, a good chart that Ricky put together and um, yeah, a number of things sort of stood out there. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see how that goes over the rest of the season, whether that ratio is maintained or whether other players who, who come back and obviously we haven't got four, you know, first round draft picks from the last three years in Reed, Cox, Hobbs or Sartis playing in the side. And there's an argument to be made that if they were available, they would all be in that side and uh, taking that age even lower. Another thing that really caught our eye, you you were straight on posting this to me uh, after you saw it, was uh, First Crack, uh, the show on Fox Footy that comes on after the Sunday games. Uh, Lee Montagna actually talked about how well set up our defensive 50 was, and I thought that was really interesting because it was only a few days before where you really identified that as a, as a key reason that even though we have been conceding quite a lot of coast-to-coast ball, we haven't been conceding quite a lot of coast-to-coast scores because our defensive uh, 50 players are set up so well. And then Daniel Hoyne, who really brought about that talk that you did last week about, you know, not just focusing on the coast-to-coast ball movement, looking at the outcome of that and what's why that's not lining up with, with more scores, something also he brought up when he was speaking on SEN Sports Day. So just in general, if you go simply by scores generated from defensive 50 – either through stoppage, turnover, or kick out this season. Essendon has only conceded 70 points, so 70 points from balls moving from our forward 50 to the opposition's forward 50, and we've actually generated 115 points for. So we're up by 45 points in that metric so far this year. So we're being really effective at, at scoring from our defensive 50, and we're restricting opposition scores from our forward 50. Yeah, I... I, I really enjoy the first crack. It's probably the only uh, football program that I watch with some level of, um, you know, on a regular basis. But and, and to be fair, I'll give them a little bit of an out. They they do have to cover all eighteen teams, whereas we obviously obsess over just the one. So we're not quite stretched as as thinly as they are. But you know, after all the research and analysis we did last week. And, you know, whilst we believe in what we see and we believe in the data, there's always a, a level of hesitation when you put yourself out on the line, even though you feel like you back it up and you can support it with everything that you see and know. Um, yeah, to, to see that st- that narrative to start to play through in the media uh, was a nice little bit of, uh, I guess, vindication for what we do here. Um, but, yeah, I think what they didn't touch on is that our, our defensive six or our back line has held up because of that pressure through the front two thirds of the ground, 
we rank eighth for inside fifties against. We were thirteenth in twenty twenty two, so we've we've done a better job at restricting the opposition to get inside our defensive fifty in the first place. We rank seventh for marks against us in inside fifty this year, which you know we all aspire to be one or two, but that's still a big improvement because we we're sixteenth last year. So you know we we had the third most marks taken against us in in our defensive fifty, and and we've improved that significantly. And then where we've gone from 15th in the AFL to ninth for tackles inside 50. So we've improved that part of our game as well. So still lots to do, still, you know, lots of things that we need to improve, but it is still improvement nonetheless. And it's not just happening in our back 50, it's happening all over the ground. Yeah, as you sort of mentioned there, given all the talk that, that's been said about Essendon, it's pretty impressive that we're plus, you know, 11 points a game in scores generated uh, from defensive 50 after what last year's experience was like. And it's not like we've played teams that are bad at moving the ball from their defensive 50 to forward 50 either. Uh, both St Kilda and GWS are above this on this metric, uh, whereas Hawthorne and Gold Coast are below. So it's not like we've played teams that are worse than us at this to this point of the season to generate uh, that, that metric there. Yeah, that's right, mate. And, uh, you know, when we look at all of the the data and all of the metrics, probably the biggest one that we haven't touched on yet that really stood out is I think we kicked a thousand behinds on Sunday and we, despite giving them all of those opportunities, we didn't concede a single score from a kick out. So I think that that on its own is a huge improvement from from how we were playing last year. Uh, one more before we move on to, to this week. Mate, you tweeted about him earlier in the week. Can we talk about Darcy Parrish? Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of discussion about Darcy Parrish's effectiveness and obviously him being in a contract year and also as a free agent, he's getting a lot of press. My impression overall this year is he's playing pretty well and I think the stats back that up. And the biggest change for me this year has been his willingness to kick the ball as opposed to handball. So so far this year, he's averaging 18 kicks and 15 handballs per game. Whereas in his previous two years, he's handballed more than he's kicked. Last year was far more than he kicked. I'd be interested to hear whether that's something he's focused on specifically or whether it's been a directive from the coaches. I expect that we've been instructed to play for territory and that's encouraging our players to kick more than handball. I know there's a little, a lot of consternation about his disposal and, you know, I think people can point to moments in, in games, the GWS game, I think he had Stringer sort of on the lead in space and he ended up kicking it over his head. You know, those, those moments do stick in the mind and, and cause players issues. But I think, with the better pressure forwards we have this year and the better setup behind the ball, getting the ball into the forward line and getting it deep is a key focus and, and something he's been doing. And I guess you're going to go through his metrics now, but he's on track for a better year stats wise and he's all Australian one in 2021. Yeah, that's right, mate. He's seventh in the AFL for average meters gained per match. He's number one for center clearances. He's fifth for average stoppage clearances and equal first for total clearances. He's equal 11th in the AFL for score involvement. So, you know, he's had an incredible start to the season. I know he didn't lay a tackle on the weekend. That's not great, but it's also unusual for him. It's not like that's something that happens week in, week out. It's happened, you know, a handful of times in 130-odd games that he's played. And you're right, he gets criticism for his kicking and he did make some errors on the weekend. I will say, and I'm not letting him off the hook for that kick to Stringer, Jake Stringer, I think, is would have to be one of the more frustrating targets to kick to for our midfielders because he's not predictable. 
Peter Wright's predictable. You know, Peter Wright's going to lead straight at you, um, get his hands up high, and 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 that makes it easy for our forwards. Uh, sorry, for our midfielders. Jake Stringer's not like that. He'll, you know, he'll lead one way, he'll lead the other, he'll loop around, uh, and, and that makes it hard in times. But yeah, he he made some some errors. But I think when you consider all the things that he's really good at, any suggestion that we could do away with him and just take a, a free agency um, compensation pick, I think, is a pretty foolish one. Uh, He's also 11th in the AFL for contested positions. Uh, sorry, contested possessions. So he, he's obviously winning the ball at the contest uh, and he's winning more clearances than anyone in the AFL that isn't named Patrick Cripps. So, uh, you know, he's getting the ball forward and helping us with that territory game and, and he's doing it at a standard that is elite in the AFL. That metres gains, gain start, he's 7th in the AFL. There's only one midfielder that's above him, and that's Seb Ross. All the others that are above him are playing halfback and wing, so the typical players that you expect to be high in, in metres gain. So what he's doing in that regard is quite unique from a from a midfielder's perspective. His kicking efficiency is at 57%, which doesn't sound great, but again, when you consider that he's winning the ball at the contest, it does stack up against most of those that are in the top 10 for, for contested possessions, or you know, top 10 or 11. So uh, David Uniak is is he's having a bit of a freak season. He's kicking at seventy three point nine percent. He's he's in the top eleven for contested ball. Tom Green's at sixty six percent, and then Bonton Pally, Tuke Miller, and Josh Dunkley are the only others in the top eleven that have a better kicking efficiency than Darcy Parish. He's going better than players like Clayton Oliver, Rory Laird, who's someone who's considered a, a really good kick, Tim Kelly, who's considered a really good kick, and and bit more of an outside player and Caleb Sarong as well as Patrick Cripps, the, the reigning Brownlow medalist. So, you know, they're all players that are in that top 11 for contested possessions along with Darcy and, and his kicking efficiency, you know, bar one or two stacks up pretty well against all of them. So yeah, I think he's doing a lot of very, very good work for us. Uh, I think we need to learn to appreciate all the things that he's really good at and forgive some of the things that he, that he's not because the good is far outweighing the bad. Yeah, and I think the best teams, when they have players like that that do have some weaknesses, the best teams work to uh, put it, make sure those players can play to their strengths while also having other players around them that can compensate for them for the weaknesses. So, obviously, Setterfield's had a really high profile so far this year for the work that he's been doing. His ability to be that big body, to be that that tackling pressure at the contest means that Darcy can be that more attacking player. And I think you, you, I think the the best example of that is what Richmond did with Dustin Martin. Dustin Martin, obviously an outstanding offensive player, not the greatest defensive player, but they built around him a system that would allow Dustin to be at his best offensively and whilst also not missing out by having other players pick up the defensive load. Yeah, that's right. I mean, Darcy Parrish clearly isn't James Hurd, but James Hurd was allergic to picking up an opponent, um, but he got away with it because of everything else he did and, and his teammates knew to play around that. And yeah, we're, we're moving more and more into a system-based approach rather than individual. And and that does still mean that individuals play to their strengths and, and others compensate for it. So I think that's a good point. Yeah. All right. Well, look, let's start talking about Melbourne. And we always start by thinking about our memories against this team. And when I asked on Twitter, I did ask people to look past the obvious of the 2000 grand final. And there were a lot of responses for Melbourne, a lot more than, than immediately came to my mind. Uh, but some of the most common ones were the 1992 Anzac Day comeback game, uh, Wanganeen's goal and, and Kickett's defensive effort on the goal line were brought up. There was our last uh, finals win, the 2004 elimination final. 
Uh, the 2016 win with the top-up players gets a lot of a mention, mention there. And obviously, we just spoke about Darcy Parrish and, and his moment in that game. Uh, the Matthew Lloyd mark of the year. Uh, and then Long's comeback in 95 after his injury uh, also came up quite a lot. And one thing, again, that was pointed out to us was that Essendon and Melbourne have a pretty storied grand final history. They've faced off in seven grand finals over their history, including a replay in 1948. And Essendon have only been victorious in two of those contests. Yeah, cheers to Muzz, who reminded me that we, of course, played in in those six grand finals between 41 and 59, and including the draw and, and replay in 1948, as you mentioned. So, yeah, I, I saw Muzz had a car accident yesterday, hit a kangaroo. So hopefully you're doing okay, mate, and faring better than your car. Uh, you and I drew, earlier in the week, we we're trying to think of some players who applied for both Essendon and, Mal- and Melbourne, and we thought of a number of them that went from Essendon to Melbourne in recent years. Moorcroft, Hibbard and Melksham, of course, that are, are there now, Chris Heffernan and, and Mitch Brown. But we couldn't think of too many that came the other way from Melbourne to Essendon besides Sam Wiedemann, who's obviously on our list now, and then uh, our ruck coach, Mark Jamar, who came across as uh, one of those 2016 top-ups. So I did reach out to the the Oracle, aka my dad, and he was very quick on the text message to point out that uh, 1985 Premiership player and current Essendon recruiter Tony Elshaw uh, came to Essendon from Melbourne. He played. He almost had an identical split. He played 66 games at Melbourne and 65 at Essendon and then went on to play a further six at Collingwood, which, you know, we can ignore. Um, but in terms of memories, mate, I I can't look past the 2000 grand final. I know as a game, as a spectacle, it didn't reach uh, the heights, you know, of, of some of the classic grand finals or, or Essendon games over the years. But uh, for what that meant and, and what, you know, and the way it turned out, it was a pretty special day. Yeah, I think for most of us of of our age, that's that's one of the big moments in Essendon history, obviously, but also in terms of Essendon and Melbourne history. Uh, as always, there'll be a moment that's featured at the end of the episode and, and listen to the end to hear that. Well, let's look at Melbourne more recently then. And obviously, they came off the premiership in 2021 and they look set to go back to back halfway through the year. They were undefeated up until round 10, but then they went to six wins and six losses in the back half of the season to finish second on the ladder still. But then they lost two finals at home uh, to Sydney and then to Brisbane to go out in straight sets, which was surprising for a a lot of people uh, given how well they'd started the season. Uh, The big thing for them last year was they had a lot of second half fade outs, uh, including the semi-final against Brisbane. They conceded 70 points to 35 after half time, which is what cost them that game. Now looking at them to this stage of the the season, they're currently three and one. So the same as Essendon. They've had big wins over the Bulldogs, Sydney and West Coast, whilst losing to the Brisbane at the Gabba by 10 points. That was the game they lost Max Gorn earlier, impacting their structure. And also the the margin was uh, came back a lot after the the lights went out and they came back on and Melbourne seemed to get the jump on Brisbane in that point. Yeah, obviously losing Max Gorn would have you know, had a big impact on how they plan to to play the game. And then also, uh, you know, interstate up at Brisbane, very different circumstances. But, uh, and, and and as you mentioned, the lights went out, they were well down and, and then they managed to get a run on when, when the game restarted. So that was quite unique. But what stands out, I guess, statistically as being the biggest difference in that loss to the Lions compared to the three games that they won? Yeah, so the biggest difference in that game was the clearance dominance of the Lions. They won that by 60 to 32. And yes, Gorn went down, but when you have Brody Grundy as your backup Ruckman in that situation, you wouldn't imagine that they would be smashed as much as that um, in that in that area. 
Uh, they're also really wasteful going inside 50. They they kicked at an efficiency of 39%, so only generating uh, scores from 39% of the inside 50s, and they've been generally going at a season average of at least 50%. So if you look overall then, in terms of stats for this year, no side has a better attack than Melbourne. They're currently averaging 114 points per game, and they have the fifth best defence, so they're only conceding 76 points a game. Now, for comparison, Essendon is at 99 points for a game and 78 points against. So, in terms of defence, we've been quite, we hold up quite well in in that metric, although I would argue that Melbourne have probably played better teams than us, at at least Sydney and Brisbane. Uh, And for a side that has clearance players of the quality of of Gorn, Oliver, Petrarca, um, it's a stat they haven't actually been overly impressive with over the time. They were ranked eighth in that stat for 2021 and seventh in 2022. This year so far, they've been ranked 12th for centre clearances and 17 for stoppage, although that, that's taken a big hit due to being smashed by the Lions in clearance in round two. If you take that game out, they've actually got a positive centre clearance differential, but they still do have a negative uh, stoppage clearance differential if you take out that Brisbane game. So it is an area where they, they're not quite as dominant as you would expect them to be. But despite losing clearance overall, uh, they're doing well in contested possession. So they're being plus 13 in wins uh, whilst being ranked fourth overall. And Essendon are actually third at the moment in terms of contested possession differential uh, of all sides. Only Geelong are taking more marks inside 50 at this point. And despite winning, winning more cont- of the contested ball than their opponents, they're also tackling more than their opponents. So they're up 10 tackles a game compared to their opposition, which is second in the comp. And again, Essendon is fourth in the comp for that metric. And with clearance not being an overall strength, they are reliant on their intercepting game to generate attack. So plus seven differential, which is the second best in the league. And again, Essendon are fourth in that. Yeah, that clearance one is a really interesting one because I'm pretty sure they're first for total number of clearances, but their differential is quite poor. and, And they've had these wild swings and roundabouts, haven't they, with that game against Brisbane where they got smashed and um, and then obviously been able to to win the clearances in others. Uh, in terms of list changes, they've made eight over the off-season. Do you want to talk us through those? Yeah, I won't go through all of them because there are a few players who didn't really play, but the key outs, uh, Luke Jackson to Frio and Jaden Hunt uh, to West Coast. Um, but they've managed to source almost like-for-like replacements for those two in terms of Grundy and Lockie Hunter, meaning they've been able to make minimal changes to their structure, which is, again, really important for teams wanting to have consistency season between season. Um, Hunter's been useful. He hasn't been quite the same highs as his, as his Bulldogs peak, but he's still averaging 21 disposals with four inside 50s a game. And since Gorn went down, so focusing on those last two matches, uh, Grundy has actually been performing quite similar to his Collingwood 2018-19 form when he was probably the best ruck in the competition, averaging 21 possessions, five clearances and four marks a game, although his hit-up numbers are slightly down compared to that peak, that Collingwood peak. They did have Wiedemann out, obviously went to Essendon. He's been probably replaced by Shackie on the list, but Shackie has been yet to play a game. And they've, they've gone with uh, a, a debutant this season, Jacob Van Ruyen, who sort of fills that role there. Uh, he's in his second year, but he made his debut this year. He's 194 centimetres tall, and he's kicked five goals in the first two games. So he's another forward threat to worry about, to go with McDonald, to go with Fritch, uh, Ben Brown, as we're going to see, is in the side this week. So there's a lot of threats that Melbourne have in their forward line. It's going to keep our defence busy. Yeah, good point. And uh, onto the midfield a, a little bit, we 
spoke about earlier that we, you know, we're, we're keen to see a fifth and sixth midfielder in there, and, and we're hoping we might see it against the Giants, and we didn't. The the D's are obviously known for the the strength and power they've got in their midfield. How have they approached their centre bounce mix this year? Well, they've actually made a bit of a change up. So the last couple of years, they've really focused on their their core midfielders. So uh, Oliver Petrarca and Viney uh, in their premiership year were were attending really high numbers. So they basically didn't have a rotate a fourth or a fifth option. It was it was really small numbers. Currently this year, Oliver is attending eighty six percent of their centre bounces, but Petrarca and Viney are in the low sixties. And Melbourne are really rotating through uh, players through the centre bounce. So players like Harms, Sparrow, Jordan, and Pickett. Uh, going through is that sort of fourth rotation and they're getting, you know, in the 20s or 30 percentages. And they're not just, this year, they're not actually just relying on that that core three. They're exposing a lot more different players and and being a bit less predictable about how they go about it. Another thing that really stands out for Melbourne is how they've been finishing game strong. They've won all of their fourth quarter so far this year. And if you add up all their their points up, they've been, they've been 88 points up. Uh, Essendon is also the only other undefeated team in fourth quarters, uh, only up 42 points, though. Uh, For Melbourne, this might be inflated somewhat by the odd circumstances of that last quarter of their Brisbane loss. Uh, They kick 6-1 to two behinds after play resumed following lights out, so that does contribute to some of their margin there. Yeah, it's another area of improvement for for us, you know, so far four games in to say that we've been running out games well and, and we've won all four of our last quarters. The other interesting thing for Melbourne is, uh, is you know, there was a lot of talk about Brayshaw when he decided to stay at Melbourne and re-signed and, and he went from playing halfback and wing straight into their centre bounce rotation the week that he announced his contract extension. He's dropped out of that midfield rotation. I think he's attended three centre bounces in, in round two, but... Besides that, he, he seems to be back into that halfback role. So, yeah, they, they, they've sort of changed things up, not only from how they went about it in 2021, but also how they went about it in 2022. Yeah. Well, look, let's reflect back on the last time Essendon played Melbourne, and it was round three of 2022. Obviously part of our poor start to the year, although after the Geelong game, there were a couple of closer games that made you sort of think, well, we, maybe we're not as bad as we think we're going to be. But uh, that game saw Melbourne 14-15-99 defeat Essendon 10-10-70. Another poor start for the Bombers. Melbourne started three goals to none. Uh, Essendon managed to drag them back briefly to take the lead in the third quarter. But then Melbourne kicks 5-3 to 2-5 in the final term, as well as a couple of late goals in the third quarter to run out 29-point winners. As one of those, sort of like us versus GWS, it was a game that Melbourne probably should have won by more. They had 66 inside 50 to 39. Uh, Essendon did win the clearances in that game, uh, 39 to 32, but they turned the ball over 10 more times, which allowed Melbourne those multiple re-entries to their forward line. Oliver was a standout. He had 38 disposals, eight clearances, and nine score involvements. Uh, Brayshaw, who you mentioned before, 34 disposals and incredible 20 marks. Uh, One of those games where once Melbourne got it on the outside, they were able to control possession pretty well. Uh, Sam Wiedemann, who won't be playing at all in the game uh, because of his concussion, unfortunately, uh, he kicked four goals. Uh, He was the dominant goal kicker for Melbourne. Uh, For the Bombers, Peter Wright, again, another player who won't be participating this time, kick four. Uh, And then Sheil had 25 and Parrish 24 disposals. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I I wasn't at that game. I'm pretty sure I was over in London at the time, but uh, if my memory serves, uh, and I, I certainly didn't 
go back and watch it. But um, McGrath went to Petraka that night from memory and, and had a bit of an impact on on curtailing him. But it was one of those games, despite hitting the the lead in the third quarter, that you know we never really felt like we were in it, but we never really felt like we were out of it. And and you know it's still only a couple of goals of difference halfway through the last quarter. But the D's kicked the last three to to ultimately put it out of reach. Yeah. Well, let's look at selection for this week and some minimal changes for, for both sides. Uh, Essendon, uh, Wiedemann, obviously, as we mentioned, is out injured with concussion. And surprisingly, given Brad Scott's comments earlier in the day, uh, Alan Davy Jr. is is outmanaged. Uh, in comes Snelling, sort of that like well, for like replacement for Davy in terms of being a small forward. And then Heppel moves into the 22 after being subbed last week. The emergencies for Essendon are Hobbs, Hind, Voss and D'Ambrosio. And for me, given the weather forecast, I think they've made the right decision not to replace a tall with a tall at this stage. Uh, Snelling, for me, is the type of player who could be really useful in a wet game with his pressure, with his tackling. And he's been playing really well in the VFL. So he definitely deserves a call up from that perspective. Um, as I said, I know that Davey was in the side at the start of the day and now he isn't, but I don't think it's necessarily a bad call to give a young kid a rest at this stage, particularly having to go over and play in potentially a, a wet ground uh, that would be quite tiring. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I probably would have gone Hobbs rather than Snelling and and just move some magnets around to to accommodate that. But, I, you know, I get what they're trying to do. I think the, the best way to build improvement is to do it through continuity. And, and I think that's pretty clear in, in what we're trying to do here. And that's just make minimal changes from week in, week out, like for like in terms of role, one out, one in. And and what it means is that you're only then adjusting one piece and you're not adjusting three, four, five or six at a time. So, uh, you know, Davies playing that small forward role, getting up the ground and coming back, Snelling will come in and do the same, albeit a different profile of player. Um, hopefully Hobbs gets the sub vest because I think that the conditions will suit. And I think the opposition sort of demand having an extra midfielder and, and running player on the bench. Yeah. I mean, there's always a possibility that they do what they did in the GWS game and pull the switch, particularly if it, it appears it's not going to rain as much as they're expecting. I think the range currently from the Bureau of Meteorology is one mil to 20 to 25 mils. So, you know, bit of a bit of a vast difference there in terms of what the ground conditions could be like. Um, but I also think that Hep will be in the starting 22 and no direct Wiedemann replacement probably means we'll see Langford stars forward and Hep will back. And given the quality of Melbourne's zone defence, a smart forward like Langford is going to be really crucial at keeping defenders busy and then not allowing them to zone off and support their other their other teammates in in spoiling or intercepting. Yeah, I think that's right, mate. Um, uh, uh, yeah, it it looks that that'll be the case based on on what we know for now. But it wouldn't surprise me if there is a late change. Uh, on to the D. So so they've made two changes. Uh, Hibbard's out, so we won't get to see him play against his old club and and Lever. Uh, albeit as you mentioned, he missed against us last year. Um, he he's a big out for them. Jordan, their sub last week is is out of the twenty two as well. They brought Tomlinson in for Lever, which is a, a bit of a like for like, although not in quality. And and then Brown comes in. As well, he he's their leading goal kicker this year, along with Fritch. He's kicked nine goals in his three games. So, uh, you know, they, they've strengthened up their forward half. They take a hit in their back half uh, of their subs. You know, Melksham, we obviously know. Jordan, we know. Uh, Laurie is a medium forward who debuted in ra- round one and hasn't played since. And then Turner is a key defender. So you'd imagine that 
they probably wouldn't go with the, with um, with Lowry or, or Turner that it'd be one of Malcolm or Jordan as their sub. Again, considering the forecast, it's interesting they have gone with with quite a tall side. Uh, again, you would wonder whether if it is quite poor conditions that maybe there will be a late change and one of those tours will come out for a Melksham directly or another player. Let's then look at what Melbourne did last week and they played just after us over in Perth uh, and they handily took care of West Coast, 19-12, uh, 126 against West Coast, 9-9, It was a 24-point margin at half time and that ballooned out to 63 with an 11 goal to five second half. Uh, if you, you go down the, the team stats, Melbourne won all the key metrics. So there was, there was no area in the game where they weren't dominant. They had six multiple goal kickers. McDonald led the way with four, whilst Fritch and Petrarca kicked two each. And then that man, Clayton Oliver, 34 disposals, 10 clearances. This sort of game you expect from, from Clayton Oliver. Uh, obviously, while both teams, Essendon and Melbourne, have had six-day breaks, uh, Melbourne have also had to deal with that travel factor of flying back from Perth and then gaining on another plane to go to Adelaide. Do you think that has any impact on their preparedness for this match or are they experienced enough at this stage that they can handle that fairly easily? Yeah, you're right. They're, they're a well-experienced and well-seasoned team and they're clearly at a different stage of development than what we are. I would think it would have some impact, though. They flew home Sunday night straight after the game, I, I believe. So it would have been the early hours of Monday morning when they got home and, and into their own beds. And I'm certainly no sports science expert. I, in fact, you know, steer away from those types of conversations. But what I do know is that sleep is the best form of recovery, whether, you know, you're recovering from a, a game of footy or from a hangover, it, it seems to do the trick. So I imagine they, you know, I, I still, you know, that's, it's kind of the equivalent of, of them playing their game at, you know, 10 or 11 o'clock at night, isn't it? By the time they get on the plane, get back from Perth, get to Melbourne, get to their homes and, and get into bed and, and get some rest. So, uh, you know, I'd imagine it, they would have had a pretty light week. Um, and, you know, if, if we can keep the game for close enough, close enough for long enough, who knows, perhaps it'll impact late in the game. Yeah, and again, you know, given the forecast of up to 25 millimetres of rain, players that are, that are tired or still sore from, from that trip back, that could potentially have an impact. And I think, Given that forecast, it's, it may be very difficult to plan for this game. And, uh, you know, it could be clear conditions based on the forecast or it could be torrential rain. Um, how do you go about adjusting a game plan for such conditions and, and how would you prepare that for taking on Melbourne? Yeah, I think we're actually in a, a fortunate situation and, and maybe a little bit more so than, than Melbourne, despite their experience and, and the quality that they've got in the team and they've got runs on the board, that our our game that we've played so far in 2023, I think lends itself reasonably well to the wet. I don't think we have to make as many adjustments as maybe we would have needed to in previous years. As as we know, territory is, is everything in the wet. So that adjustment shouldn't be too hard because we're already playing a territory, um, you know, base game. I think both, both teams are typically pretty direct with their ball use. Essendon a little bit more so. Uh, where we're not so direct, though, is when we're coming out of back 50. We really do try to use that first kick to try and set up our play. So I think we're probably going to have to be a little bit longer and a bit more direct coming out of the back line uh, rather than sort of controlled and methodical. 
than the, as we normally are if that rain does come. But I think that's where the two ruckman is really important in this, and and where we do have an advantage because you know they're they're like they're only going to go with uh, with Grundy and then pinch hit elsewhere. Uh, so yeah, I think Phillips and Draper are really going to need to give us that outlet kick from the defensive fifty uh, because we're going to need it if that rain does come down. But I think in terms of style and ball movement, that's really the only adjustment that we'll need to make. Well, then, how do you see the midfield battle playing out? We've we've talked a lot about Melbourne's midfield and, and obviously the the danger posed by players like Oliver and Petrarca. How do you how do you go against a team like that? Yeah, you mentioned how Brisbane really dominated those clearance against them in their round two loss. Uh, Brisbane are the uh, are a really um, strong clearance side, but they're kind of inconsistent. Um, and it, they've won the clearances significantly in their two wins and they've lost them in their two losses. So I don't think we should take away from that game that the D's lost the clearance count because they're playing against one of the midfields that are the best at it. Brisbane are good, but they're inconsistent. So I think what happened was that Brisbane really got themselves up for that. If you remember, they got pumped in round one and they really went after the ball in round two and and caught Melbourne by surprise. Dunkley led the, uh, Dunkley and Ashcroft, you know, at second gamer at that stage, led the clearance count that night with nine each. Uh, Neil had eight, McCluggage had six, and then it was shared by a group of of other uh, midfielders and other Lions players. So that Dunkley aside, who's obviously, you know, a big, strong, tall midfielder, and, you know, he's our centre field, it wasn't big bodies that dominated. And granted, they played in the dry, we're likely to play in the wet. So there's some differences there. But the Lions were just really, really committed to to winning contested ball and, and making sure that they were, um, uh, you know, giving themselves every chance to get territory by winning clearances. I think Setterfield again takes that defensive spot in the clearance. I don't think we necessarily, it's an either or, do we tag or defend Petrarca or Oliver? I, I think we just need to make sure that we restrict the player that is, in the most offensive position. And that's going to be the one that's facing Melbourne's goal. That one that's going to look to run through the stoppage or the clearance and, and try and get the ball going their way. And Setterfield just needs to make sure that he's doing what he can to take that space away from them. I, I said it in the last couple of weeks. I'm going to say it again. Uh, I think we need to be prepared to increase our rotations, particularly if it is really wet, uh, you know, that these games become slogs, they become real battles. Um, and, and they really do take it out on you. You, you spoke earlier about, Melbourne's approach, they do have Brayshaw up their sleeve uh, if they need to throw him in. Uh, and you'd have to think that his size would give them, a, a, a again, if it is really wet and heavy, that that they'd have to have a big temptation to throw him into the midfield to help with that workload. Maybe though Lever being out might change that. But yeah, ultimately, Setterfield takes that defensive spot again, as he has all year, and, and tries to limit either Petrarca or Oliver, who's in that more offensive role. And then ultimately we rotate more. Let's see Caldwell, Perkins, Stringer in there a little bit more. And, and Hobbs, if he does come on a sub, I think gives us a, a little bit of a, um, uh, you know, a, a, an ace up the sleeve, so to speak. Um, uh, you know, as we know, the best way to get territory, whether it's wet or dry, but but more so important in the wet is to win stoppages and win plenty of them. Yeah. And then obviously the forward line, we've spoken about how Lever is now out. And that takes away one uh, great interceptor that Melbourne have, but they don't rely on just one player in their defensive half. They're, they're really well structured there. How do we go about limiting their effectiveness and creating scoring shots for ourselves? 
Yeah, they certainly do try and free Lever up to intercept as much as possible. He's fifth in the AFL this year for intercept marks per game. So it is a big hole to fill. And, and Tomlinson's a handy player, but he's not Lever, let, let's face it. Brayshaw and Rivers are equal 24th, and, and Stephen May's only played the two games. So it's a bit harder to, to get a read on, on how he's performing. But they do have some options down there. And, and you know, you mentioned earlier Brayshaw took 20 marks against us last year. So, uh, you know, he... He's a dual threat. If he plays in the midfield, he's he's going to be a bit of a weapon for them. If he plays in the back half, then then he's a worry there too for us. So uh, he's a watch. But they don't have a lot of size back there. Tom McDonald's been named in the back line. He's 195 centimetres and 100 kilos. He played forward last week. He kicked four. I, I think he'll play forward again. Uh, May's 190 centimetres, so he's not your typical key defender. Tomlinson, they brought in 193. Rivers is 188. They've got young Judd McVie back there who's 185. Bowie is 178. So they're not they're not big. They're not that they're not overly tall. Harrison Petty's their tallest at 197. He's played forward a little bit, but with you know Brown back and I expect McDonald to play forward. And with Lever out, I think he goes back into the back line. I think this is the matchup, mate, that we need to isolate, whether it's Draper, it's Phillips, it's Jones. It probably won't be Stringer, uh, but it's likely to be our our tallest forward at any point in time. He's lost 40% of his one-on-one contest this season, so I'd really like to see us try and work him over and and try and isolate him. But moreover, where we can't get separation, I think we need to create contests and bring the ball to ground. We've been better at that this season, and if it is wet and we do get all that rain – Giving away intercept marks will really, really let them off the hook. So, because we're going to have to fight so hard to get territory, you can't give that away by allowing them to have an outnumber. Dump kicks inside 50 are, are okay this week, as long as they're deep and we've got even numbers. We have to make sure that's the priority. When we look back at Melbourne's four games this season, the week, the, the West Coast game was the the outlier. They weren't good enough to lock the ball inside their own forward 50. They only scored the one goal from forward stoppages, i.e. In, in Melbourne's defensive 50. But in their first three games, it was a real problem for the Ds. They conceded 3-1 in round one, four straight in their loss to Brisbane, and then 2-2 in round three from stoppages in their defensive 50. So I think... Isolate Petty where we can. He's the vulnerable one. And then deep entries to contests where we can't, you know, get separation and obvious options. And then see if we can expose that weakness um, at that defensive stoppages for them, an area where we've been pretty good at. Absolutely. And as, as you sort of say, if, if we get on top in that clearance battle and we're getting territory in the wet, you, you often see repeat stoppages in the forward 50. And then, as you sort of said there, we can expose that hopefully with our smalls. I'm going to end with our final thought then. Uh, obviously, we've talked a lot about it, the potential of being wet. Uh, the SNM player that's going to have the biggest challenge to adjust to wet conditions is? Yeah, I think it will be a little bit of a challenge for a lot of our defenders, but I think Jordan Ridley, the most, he instinctively goes for his marks. And, and if we do get that rain, the conditions probably won't lead, lend themselves to that. He's going to need to spoil uh, more often than 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 marking because we do want to clear the area. So I, I think he's he's got the biggest adjustment to make. What about you? Yeah, I'd, I'd say Shield. Uh, I, th- I think he relies so much on burst from stoppage to be at his most effective. It's really hard to do that on a wet ground, particularly as that the Adelaide Oval is already going to have it had two games played on it to that point of the weekend. If it's raining before then in, in those previous games, it's, it's going to be a bit more chopped up than you would otherwise expect it to be. So a bit of a challenge for him this week, I imagine, if it is wet. 
Yeah, I, I guess one thing that he does have at his advantage is is his ability to carry and, and clear an area quickly. But um, but yeah, that that also relies on him being able to get the footy, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Well, fingers crossed. You know, we don't see Oliver with 40, 45 disposals this week, and we keep him to a reasonable number, and then maybe we can get our hands on the ball. Yeah. All right, look, well, that's going to do us for tonight. Uh, just some info on what Donnerstat's going to look like over the next couple of weeks, because with Anzac Day does throw our regular schedule out of whack a little bit. So as I said before, uh, bonus episode eight is going to be out Sunday morning. Uh, on Tuesday this week, we actually have a special guest lined up that's going to talk about Essendon's first five weeks with us and, and what we've witnessed over the game style uh, during that time. Uh, we're also going to do the Melbourne game review during that episode rather than holding it over to the Collingwood preview. So we're actually going to be recording the Anzac Day preview on Sunday morning, and that'll come out straight away. Now, we were hoping to do it on the Sunday night so that we had the final team, uh, but our schedules don't line up at this stage. So we thought it was better to do it earlier rather than on Monday night so more people had time to listen to it. Uh, regular podcast should resume for the Geelong game with that going out either Thursday or the Friday night before. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed your chat with Jade, mate. Well done. And thank you to Jade for joining us. Uh, obviously looking forward to to the game on Sunday, but then, uh, you know, I think we can announce that special guest uh, as Robert Shaw. We, we have put it out on Twitter a couple of times. So, um, you know, Shaw, he's obviously got a lot of football knowledge and, and watches the game closely. And uh, yeah, he'll, he'll join us on Tuesday night to, um, to talk to us about what he's seen as, as our improvement and some of the changes we've made. And, and then moreover, some of the trends that we're seeing uh, across the competition and with a bit of an eye to, to what sort of the next uh, chunk of games looks like. So looking forward to that chat with, uh, with Shuri. And then obviously the build up to Anzac day is always a big one. So yeah, it yeah. should be good fun. Absolutely. And just on that Shory episode, it's going out to everyone at once. It's not going to be behind the paywall um, for a week before it goes out. It's going to be live to everyone uh, as soon as it's completed. But that's all from us tonight. Any final words from you, Johnny? No, looking forward to uh, to sitting down on Saturday, mate, and uh, and seeing how we go. Yeah, me too. Go Dons. An absolute lemon by uh, Mark Jamar. Peveril stands and delivers to the square. That's a car. Shades of yesteryear, a flying Lloyd. There's a lesson to be learned here for his opponent too. Lloyd's had a clean run and jump a couple of times today. And Warnock hasn't taken his running. You just can't allow him to do that. That, You've got to get into him as his run is coming. Look at him, look at him at the back here. He has a clear, uninterrupted run. Warnock's nowhere near him. He's looking at the ball. You've got to make contact with your man. That's a cracker. That is a spectacular grab from Matthew Lloyd. Importantly for his team, though, he's lining up for number six. He kicks it. Half a dozen for the skipper. The rain falls. The bombers are raining.